That is boomy. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Um, kiddos, you guys are dismissed into kids' church, uh, and it's just, I'm just glad to be here. Uh, we weren't here last week. My name's Gabe, by the way, one of the elders here. Uh, we were out in Colorado performing a wedding for Cody and Evie, uh, and, and here's the conclusion that I've came to. I just want to take an informal poll real quick. It, hypothetically, if... I were to move to Colorado and start a church, who would go with me? All right, let's go. Uh, I mean, there's there, like, it's just beautiful. There's a lot of things that are legal there. It's just great. Let's just go. Uh, no, not that, y'all. Gosh. Uh, no, seriously, it was, it was beautiful. We loved every minute of it. But uh, like I said a couple weeks ago, we missed you guys. We're glad to be back. Uh, there's no greater joy than opening up God's Word and sharing it with you, living in a community with you guys. So, so we're just grateful to be back. But as you're flipping to Hebrews chapter 13, which is just crazy, Hebrews 13, did you know there's not a Hebrews 14? So Hebrews 13, this is the last chapter. So we started this we're almost done with the book of Hebrews. We've got three more weeks. Then we're going to spend four weeks in the book of Jonah, which I'm super pumped about. And then you know what's after that? Christmas time. We go into four weeks of Advent. So listen, three weeks of Hebrews, four weeks of Jonah, and then Christmas, the best time of the year. I'm super pumped about that. But uh, before we dive in, I want to recognize someone. So uh, I don't know if you guys know this. I get so much flack when I preach because you preach so long. I do have a countdown up here, but the countdown is not running because this does not count against my time as a preacher, all right? So this is not sermon. This is pre-sermon. Um, but I want to recognize someone. But before I do, let me kind of give a quick preface. Uh, as you guys know, we're elder-led, right? So I I'm the only full-time guy. You see my... Uh, beautiful face up here the most, uh, but it's me and four other men uh, that lead this church, that decisions get made together. Uh, these four other guys could fire me at any point. I have no more authority than they do. Uh, we lead this together. We see this out of the polity that's described in the scriptures, and we just think it's the best way to do it. So um, I want to recognize one of our elders. He came on as an elder in 2017. Um, he's just going to share a little bit about what he's what God has been teaching him and growing him in and what the future looks like for him. So, uh, Jeremy, if you want to come up, uh, y'all give a hand for Jeremy. It's all yours. Now, I've been an elder since 2017, um, and I am actually a school counselor down in Dawson County. I've been there, uh, I've been down there for seven years now. I work at an elementary school there, and I've always had a heart for the kids of Dawson County and for the kids in my school at Riverview Elementary. Uh, but over the past year and a half since COVID started, God has really started to grow in my heart a love for the community of Dawsonville. Uh, during COVID-19, when everyone was quarantined, I had the awesome opportunity uh, to help deliver food to the families that were that needed that through the school system, and uh, starting there, and uh, in a lot of other ways over the past year or so, God has really been opening a lot of doors for me in the Dawsonville community uh, as a as a counselor, as a part of the community, but also just in other things that I've had the opportunity to get involved with, and people in the community that I've had the opportunity to meet, uh, and as I've felt that heart for the Dawsonville community growing. Uh, about a, almost a year ago now, I guess, uh, I really felt convicted by God 
uh, that my time at the branch was going to be coming to an end. Uh, and when it first happened, I didn't know why. I didn't know uh, what was what God had in store for me, uh, and it, it was actually really difficult for me. Uh, I was pretty angry at God for a little while, but uh, as as the past year has progressed, and I've really started to to see all the different opportunities that were available to me in Dawsonville, and how God can use me for ministry there, I've come to understand that decision uh, a lot better. So I, uh, this is my last Sunday here at the branch. I'm going to be uh, lo- looking for a church to get plugged into down in the Dawsonville community so that I can use all the gifts and all the openings that God has given me down there to bring other people into his kingdom. Uh, you know, it has nothing to do with, uh, with all the offensive things Gabe has said over the years that I've been here or, uh, or anybody here or any of the theology or anything like that. Uh, I love the people here. I, I love my family here at the branch. Uh, and I hope that I will still be able to remain in fellowship with all of you guys. And uh, I hope that you'll continue to pray for me as I go uh, to minister down there in Dawsonville. But one of the things that we as elders talked about the very first time we ever met was that we wanted the branch church to be a river church and not a lake church. We didn't want to just retain everybody that we ever we ever got. We wanted to uh, to pour out. And for a lot of us, that may look like church planning. Uh, you know, Gabe jokes, but maybe some of us will end up in Colorado someday. I, I grew up as a West Coast kid. I'd love to end up back on the West Coast someday in my life. But for right now, I know that the place that God is calling me to serve is Dawsonville, uh, and he's given me a lot of connections to do that. So uh, that's where where I'm going to be serving. That's the community that I'm going to be trying to reach uh, until God calls me somewhere else. But hopefully you guys will still see me around. Hopefully I'll still be able to, to fellowship with y'all, and, and uh, I hope that you guys will pray for me and that the Dawsonville community will see a lot of awesome growth uh, as God works in it. So um, we will now perform the ceremonial cutting off of the branch shirt now that you're leaving. Uh, no, but seriously, if, if you don't have kids or youth, you probably don't understand the amount of sacrifice that Jeremy has served in over the last five years, uh, just tirelessly working for everything kids and youth related. Uh, so we're super sad about this. Uh, we just told our members before, and, and we've been talking about this since the summer, uh, but Jeremy, we cannot thank you enough for all that you've done. Uh, in true elder fashion, we have a gift for you, but I forgot it. Uh, so we'll get that to you. Uh, but for church, if you guys just want to write Jeremy an encouraging letter and either give it to him directly or you can give it to us and we'll pass it on to Jeremy. Um, that would mean a lot. But uh, man, thank you. Thank you for the last five years. Thank you for everything you've done. And uh, we're not too far away. So make sure you come visit. Thanks, Jeremy. Love you, man. All right. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 is where we're going to land. Now, let me preface this by saying, when I was in high school, I learned probably one of the best leadership lessons that I've ever learned. Um, and, and so I was probably a junior. I was going through a leadership development process uh, with my drumline. And, and if you want to make fun of me for being the drumline, let's go. I will, I've got my fighting shoes on right now. I will take you down. Uh, yes, I was in drumline. No, I was not in marching band. Those two things are different. Can I get a witness? Uh, those are not the same. Raise your hand if you're in marching band. I, I've got to go. This doesn't matter. Um, I've got a, this is going to be a long sermon anyways, and I'm just chasing a rabbit. So uh, one of the lessons that I learned as I'm learning to grow in my leadership through the drumline and marching band in general was this. Uh, no one cares how much you know till they know how much you care. Have you all heard this before? Raise your hand if you've heard this. I'll say it one more time. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. 
So for us in leadership, what that simply means is uh, you've constantly got to be showing your love, your support, your encouragement to the people that you're leading. Um, and, and if you just come in, tell them what to do and leave, well, there's no real relationship there. There's no real love there. And there's going to be bitterness and resentment that's grown. Uh, but if you're constantly encouraging, showing love, supporting, then when you need to speak into their lives, you've earned the credibility to do that. And what we're going to see this morning in he, is Hebrews chapter 13 is that really the first 12 chapters are God showing us his love, his mercy, his grace for us, why Jesus is better. He's going over and above to show how great he is and how much he cares for us. And now he's going to speak some truth to us. So in light of everything that he has taught us and in light of everything that he's done for us, here's the best way that we should live. Now, now the tendency and why this is so important that we see the first 12 chapters apart from the last chapter, is it's so easy for us to slip into legalism, right? I'm going to do this, I'm not going to do this, and that's what's going to keep God happy with me. But that is not at all the tone of this text. So we'll see that very clearly this morning, that God cares, he loves us deeply, and in out of that abundance of love, he's given us real practical pointers on how to live. So Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to pick it up just one through six, and you guys will see what I'm talking about, this very clear quick five exhortations for us to live by this morning. Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you were also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual, sexually immoral and adulterous. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this time this morning. Thank you for your word that you've given us. Spirit, would you illuminate it to our hearts? Uh, would this be so clear to us? And Father, we ask that you would convict us. Uh, one of the five exhort exhortations or all five of them. Father, where do we need to repent and grow in? Father, not to earn your love or earn your grace or earn your mercy, but because you love us, let us willingly walk in obedience to what you've commanded. Thank you for this time together. It's your name we pray. Amen. So th there's two main reasons that the author has included this at this point in the text. And the first one is this, what we've kind of already talked about, that we've seen over the last 12 chapters, how good, how marvelous, how great God is. Hebrews 12, if we go back to what Stephen preached last week, which he did a great job. I'm just so grateful that the Lord has given men here to help preach and help lead. It's just so helpful to know that. Uh, Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 puts it this way. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So we see this idea because of who God is and what he's done. And Hebrews 12 really outlines uh, specifically, I mean, just the, the, 
power, the might, how God should put fear in our hearts for how powerful he is. But then in his love, he also sent Christ to redeem us, to rescue us. In light of how great God is, let us offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And this word word worship doesn't mean what we're doing here alone, right? Yes, this is a component of worship. But Romans 12, 1 would talk about that our lives are worship. So what is our spiritual act of worship was following these five exhortations. In light of who God is, let us live a life of worship by following what he's asked us to do. But again, we cannot skip over 12 chapters versus one chapter. And you see this all throughout the narrative of Scripture, right? You can even go to the Ten Commandments. The first of the four Ten Commandments are based on our relationship to God first. Who is God? What do we do in light of who God is? And then the next six are in light of who God is, how do we treat those around us. You see this in Paul's writings across all the epistles, right? He spends the first half writing to a church, writing to already Christians, explaining to them what the gospel is. And then he gets to, in light of the gospel, in light of who God is, this is then how we should live. Love God, love others. This order matters. We don't love others so that we can love God. We don't do the right things and don't do the right things to earn the love of God. This is theology and then practicality. Exposition, then exhortation. Creed, then conduct. Doctrine, then duty. Indictive, then imperative. And the order here is crucial. We cannot put the cart before the horse. And in the South Bible Belt, this is what we want to do. We want to walk into legalism, tell me what to do, what not to do. And so my plea this morning is don't, don't do that. Don't forget the first 12 chapters of Hebrews and jump, jump straight to Hebrews 13. We have to put, because of we love God, because of who God is, first and foremost, then we walk into these exhortations. But secondly, we have to see clearly who this is written to. We talked about this week after week after week. This was written to a group of people that are struggling in their faith because of the persecution that's coming from Rome, uh, because of their Jewish families have pushed them out. They have no home, they have no group, uh, and they're losing faith quickly. So the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is to persevere, persevere, keep going. So these five works exhortations are directly correlated to that. That if you don't follow these five, you're going to lose faith, the church is going to disappear, and you're going to walk away. So these five exhortations that are written to the church as a whole is how we persevere. Now we have to understand very quickly and clearly that we're not operating in the same persecution that's happening to this church. And the persecution that's looming them, which is uh, martyrdom, which is death, is, is not looming us at the Church of America. But the frame that can take place is, and the disappearance of the Branch Church Dahlonega, if we don't keep these exhortations, if we don't fight for unity within the church, this church could disappear tomorrow. So the same fear that this author had for this small church in Rome is the same fear that we should have. That if we live our lives how we think, or we live the world lives how the world tells us to live, man, this church is over. But we must follow these five exhortations so that we can stay pure for the sake of the gospel. So that the gospel will advance, will spread here and across the globe and in Canada or Colorado. I'm not going to Canada. Sorry, that is not going to happen. Oh, gosh, I said it. We're going to Canada. 
dang it. Why didn't I say Colorado? Then we could move to Colorado. So uh, here's what we're going to do. Five exhortations, and I'm going to try to move through them really quickly so that we can see and keep those frameworks in mind. One, this is not to earn God's love. This is because God loves us. And two, this is to keep the unity, the perseverance of the church moving forward. This is the whole idea that we're here. Sound good? So Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. So he starts out, in light of who God is, let brotherly love continue. And this word continue is really tricky because we don't really know, is brotherly love fading? So he's pushing them back to continue this. Or are they doing such a great job at this that they just need to continue in letting brotherly love happen? We don't really know, but most scholars would agree that the brotherly love within this church was starting to fade pretty quickly. That, that they weren't as tight, they weren't as unified. And this idea of brotherly love is where we get the word Philadelphia. It was naturally formed in this young church. So when things were exciting, when converts were taking place, when there's so much energy and buzz, man, this brotherly love was running rampant. But now there's persecution happening now. Uh, people are starting to fall away from their faith. And this brotherly love is going away. And, and we probably all know this feeling. Uh, raise your hand if you've been married in the last three years. All right, so, so you're kind of in this honeymoon phase where, man, this brotherly love, this idea of love is just innate in you. You just love everything that your spouse does. Nothing could be the worst. But hear me this. In, in your 10-year anniversary, you're going to yell at your spouse because they're breathing wrong. Right? You just had enough you're going to yell at them for the way that they chew ice. You're going to get passive aggressive because they put the fork on the wrong side of the plate. You're going to get so angry over the smallest things. This is what this text is implying, that the longer time goes on, if we're not constantly pushing, let brotherly love continue, let brotherly love continue, then we're going to get fed up with the little things that did not bother us in the beginning, but are driving us crazy now. We have to be the first ones to respond with grace and with mercy and practicing forbearance. Forbearance is basically saying, I'm going to forgive you no matter what you do. You're going to sin, I'm going to sin, but I'm already going to make up my mind right now. Before the sin takes place, I'm going to forgive you. This is what brotherly love looks like. So he, this author is impeding to them, you must, you must continue in the brotherly love that you had at first. You're making all these big deals out of things that don't really matter. Go back to how it was at first. And we see this clearly in John 13, Jesus' words. John 13, 34 through 35 says this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Did y'all catch Jesus' argument here? The greatest apologetic that the church can have is the way that we love one another. Did y'all catch that? The greatest way we can welcome people into the church, we can tell them about Jesus, is the way that we love and interact with one another. Now, and, and we can take this out of biblical and just go to a normal, everyday occurrence. When you were growing up, you went over to a friend's house, right? And if the friend's parents were fighting, there's just clear dysfunction within that friend's house, do you want to go back the next time? Of, of course not. 
but you go over to a friend's house, there's a warm meal ready for you. They're so loving, they're so kind. You sit down and watch a movie with them. They've got popcorn. You can just tell that there's true, genuine love, or you're going to want to go back to that friend's house. So if we're not loving one another with a brotherly love, then why in the world would we expect anyone to come be a part of this? That the love that we have is the greatest apologetic possible. And I've quoted this before, but I've heard this, and I don't really know who exactly said it first, but the church is the only army that shoots at its wounded. I mean, we're so quick to condemn and to throw shade on people that are struggling with sin that we're the only army that shoots at its wounded. So again, why would anyone want to come be part of this dysfunctional family if love is not what binds us together? So we must let brotherly love continue. And this is what the author was imploring to them. Don't let these frays take place. Don't fight over things that don't matter. The world is watching. Love one another. Now, now here's your test. You ready? Here's your test. You do this what you want. How much do you gossip about those that are part of the church? How much does conversations come up about people that you have not actually in a loving manner approached them about? How much would you say behind someone's back that you would never confront them with? Is that brotherly love? Is that love that's continuing? Well, of course not. Of course not. I mean, Matthew gives us very clear instructions on how to handle conflict within the church. Go to the brother. If that brother doesn't listen, bring two or three witnesses. If that doesn't, bring them before the church. But this idea of gossip and slander and talking behind someone, that is not brotherly love at all. But that is what the church is almost known for. I mean, we don't have to make caricatures here. We all know what prayer meetings are in deep Southern Baptist churches, right? There's nothing more than a time to gossip. We know what happens behind, let's not be that church branch. Let's, Let's not be that gossiping, slandering. Let us be a church that brotherly love continues. And this is key. This is crucial for the perseverance of the church in Rome, and this is crucial for the perseverance of the church in Dahlonega. Exhortation two, we'll look at verse two. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, context really matters here because, again, you have to understand, Christians are having property taken from them. They are unpopular within Rome, right? So, so Christians were not welcomed in the inns. They were not welcomed into hotels. And history would tell us that there's actually a few occurrences where Christians checked into hotels within Rome and everything was stolen from them. Or there's even one case that history tells us where they were kept in this hotel as a prisoner. So, so this is the hospitality that must take place, that Christians within Rome had nowhere to go. They had nowhere to turn to other than other Christians. And we also have to see the other side of Rome is it wasn't just Christians that were being marginalized. Anybody that was against Rome, that was speaking out against Rome, was being marginalized and abused and neglected. So hospitality for them mattered. I mean, it's life and death on the line. These Christians, if they didn't have someone open up their doors and open up their house to them, where were they going to go? So, Do not neglect to show hospitality among strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Share your gospel or share your home. 
Share your life. Share your love with those. Do not neglect this idea. Now, if you've been around the branch for any amount of time, I, I do think we do this really well, and I'm super grateful for it. Uh, every now and then, and this isn't like a massive thing, but Every now and then, people will reach out to us, or they'll come up here and learn from us, not that we have anything to learn, but here's what they marvel at. How in the world do you have college students coming to your church? I mean, in the world that we live in, where college students evidently hate everything about Jesus and hate everything institutionalized and want nothing to do with the church, your church has college students. Can you teach us how to do it? And and my answer is really simple. Preach the Bible and open up your homes. We're not doing anything. We're meeting in a gym. A gym. Now, I get it. Lumpkin County is purple and gold. That's great. This is not gold. This is the worst color imaginable. I've literally never, I'm not even going to go. I just, this is, this is not a great looking facility to be a part of. And we tried to put like lights up and we're putting lipstick on a pig, man. This is not a great environment. This is not nothing that's like, man, you got to come check out this facility that the branch is in. It's purple and gold till we die, bro. That, that's, here we are. But this idea of hospitality, of opening up your home to those that need a place, it's a very old thing. We didn't invent this. We didn't do anything about this, but we're convinced, and we're even more convinced studying this text, that the perseverance of the church is dependent upon Christians not neglecting showing hospitality to strangers, not welcoming people into their homes. Now, one of the books that I highly recommend, and Dylan makes all of our family group leaders read, is a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Highly recommend it. It's written by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. And within this book, Rosaria Butterfield, it's just a memoir of her testimony. And within this book, she starts off as a hard-hearted atheist, a women's studies professor at a Ivy League university, wants nothing to do with the church, mocks the church. She's actually preparing to write a book about the harmfulness of the church in America. America. And so because that she wants to write a book about the harmfulness, she doesn't really know much about the Bible, uh, she locks arms with this Presbyterian pastor to learn about the Bible so that she can use his words against him, basically. So what happens is this family, this pastor and his wife, invites Rosaria into their home, eats dinner together, and that's, I think it's about weekly they're doing this. And just through this ordinary hospitality of eating dinner together, Rosaria's life has changed. She leaves a life of homosexuality behind, and she converts to Christ. She leads a life that hated God, and now she's a Christ follower. She actually married a pastor. Now, now what is the craziness that took place? What was the scheme that we must learn? You open up your house, and you eat dinner with people. That you welcome strangers into your home. Radical, ordinary hospitality. We eat 21 meals a week, right? Some of us more some of us less. Let's eat meals together. Let's welcome strangers into our home. Do not underestimate the power of ordinary hospitality. There's a, I'm not going to use names, but there's a couple within our church uh, that I've just gotten to know over the last season, and they just finished building their house, and after reading the book about Rosaria Butterfield and a couple other books, uh, as they finished the construction on their house, one of the things that was going to happen was they were going to put a gate at the end of their driveway just to protect their house. And he came to the conclusion, they came to the conclusion that that was the opposite 
of what hospitality would look like. So they canceled the gate. They said, no, we want our house to be available, open to anyone. I just love that. That's what hospitality looks like. But do you see the argument that this author is implying? So yes, we're supposed to open our house, open our lives to strangers, show hospitality to everyone. But why? But why? Because we may be serving angels. That there may be angels among us. Now, I wish we had a lot more time we could dive into this idea because we see clearly Genesis 18 where Abraham serves angels and had no clue what was happening. We see this also a couple times in Judges. But the most important thing, not only just serving angels, but it's Matthew 25, 35 through 40. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. This is Jesus telling a story, telling a parable. Then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly, I say to you, as you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. So as we're showing hospitality to those who are in need, to those who just need a meal at a home, that just want to be welcomed into our lives, Jesus would say that not only are we serving them, but we're serving the king. That when we serve the least of these, we've also served Christ. We have to show hospitality. Love those who are in the church and show hospitality to everyone. Exhortation number three, we see in verse three. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you were also in the body. Now, this is one that we can clearly look back in Hebrews chapter 10 and see that the church of Hebrew had been commended for this, that they were loving and showing compassion for those that are in prison. And again, context really matters here because if you go to prison in America, you're going to get a couple warm meals a day, you're going to get a bed, you're going to get clothes, you're going to be taken care of. But in prison in this day, none of that was true. In fact, if people didn't bring stuff to you, didn't bring you food, bring you clothes, bring you a blanket, chances are you're going to die within prison. That's the reality of what's taking place here. So it was up to the church to show hospitality to those that are prison, to offer them everything that they need. Which when you really kind of tease this out a little bit, it's crazy that if someone would not have brought Paul writing materials to write these letters to these different churches, how many of the epistles would we not have? Because most of Paul's epistles were written from where? Prison. So someone bringing that stuff to Paul so that he could write encouraging letters to the churches would not have happened if this, this way of love, this way of compassion was here. But what we really see here is empathy. What we really, what we're trying to understand here is empathy. Because prison for us isn't really a thing, right? Like this level of approach, this level of care for someone in prison. Sure, we can do prison ministry, and I'm, I'm not... I'm not taking that away. But what I am saying is what's happening here, we see as though in prison with them. That is the definition of empathy, of putting yourself in someone else's shoes and understanding how they feel, act, and behave. Ken Hughes would put it this way. This is an empathy so deep that they would will to project themselves into the inner life of those suffering, mistreatment, and imprisonment. 
So they're willingly putting themselves in those shoes so that they can know best how to serve and love one another. And I think if there's one area that we must grow in is this idea of empathy. And not, not sympathy, right? Like we understand the difference of sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is, man, I feel bad for you, good luck. Empathy is, not, I'm, I'm willing to walk a mile in your shoes to understand what it is that you're going through. I, I, I'm going to be there with you. I'm not just going to smart off some quick, witty Bible verse, tell you to get over it and move on. And we see this empathy idea from Jesus. When his friend Lazarus dies, he comes into town. Now, Jesus knows that he's going to resurrect him. Jesus knows that all this is going to be over within a matter of hours. But what does Jesus do? He weeps. He cries with them. He sits with them. He mourns with them. This is scripture all over the place to tell us, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. Don't come at me with those cheap Bible verses that don't really fix in the moment. Sit with me, mourn with me, lament with me, walk in empathy, figure out what it means for me to be hurting, for you to be hurting. Walk together in this season. Not, hey, here's 20 bucks, go, good luck, go have fun. But sit, work, work to understand what those around us are going through. What does it mean for us to really walk and live in empathy? I'll tell you this, it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of work. It is a whole lot easier to write a quick card, put a gift card in it, and put it in the mail. It's a whole lot easier to say, hey man, Jesus said don't worry, so quit worrying. Like, if you tell that to me, measure my arm distance first, because chances are I'm going to punch you. Because in the moment, that is not helpful. What is helpful is, hey, man, can I just sit with you for a couple hours? Hey, man, you're, you're going through some, can I just come over? Can we cook a meal and just be with you for a while? Ask really good questions. I, I don't quite understand what you're going through. Tell me about it. What's going on? I want to, I want to understand. I want to feel with you what you're feeling. This is this idea of empathy, putting ourselves in those positions. So we have to work to understand we have to listen for the sake of listening, not for the sake of talking. Can I get an amen from anybody on that one? If you're forming your sentence in your head as they're talking, that is not empathy. I'm talking to myself. If you're too busy coming up with a rebuttal, why that person shouldn't be feeling that way in that moment, that is not empathy. Listen for the sake of listening to understand what they're going through. That is true empathy. Brotherly love, show hospitality, be empathetic. Those are the first three exhortations. Now look with me at verse four. Any, any little kids in here? He's okay. All right, just, just we're, we're going into, you'll see. Uh, number four, or verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So th there's two ditches that can happen when we talk about marriage and marriage infidelity. And, and uh, I just love, I, it's almost like the preacher of this knew that kids were going to be in the room as this letter was being written because he said the marriage bed. All right, so are we all up to date on what the code marriage bed is you know what happens within a marriage bed if not public school failed you, all right? So this is what we're talking about, this idea of marriage bed. That's going to be code. Everybody give me a wink. You know what I'm saying? Okay, marriage bed. So 
There are two ditches that can happen here, and we see both of them in the text. Uh, one, there's the ditch that, like, listen, um, love is free. And the same thing that was happening in Rome happens now. That the construct of marriage is just simply that. It's just a construct. It's for your convenience. There's no real covenant there. Um, be with this person as long as you're happy, but if they quit making you happy, leave them and, and go somewhere else. And you can practice free love. Go do whatever you want with whoever you want. It's about you being happy. There's no real love, respect, honor showing to the covenant of marriage. It's all about the freedom and expression and live your life how you want to live. This is one ditch that can happen. But, but there's another ditch that was really within the church in the first and second century was a reality what you only, a sign of maturity, I'll, I'll put it this way, a sign of maturity was to abstain from the marriage bed. That the more mature you were as a Christian, the more sanctified you were as a Christian, the more you would abstain from what happens in the marriage bed. It was only for procreation and nothing else. And you kind of even see this in some of the movies from the 60s and 70s. I'm, I'm thinking of the Christmas story just because it's the greatest movie ever. But when he goes into his mom's room, right, and there's two twin beds. Mom and dad didn't even sleep together. That was not the idea of the marriage bed that we see within Scripture. So, so there's two ditches. Free love, marriage doesn't mean anything. And then this other ditch that we can fall into that, that we're going to be so sanctified that we don't need that. Listen, we're not Amish, right? This marriage bed was given to us as a gift to worship God. Can I get an amen? And listen, can, can I just, okay. I, I know, I, I heard some feedback about Stephen when he preaches, that Stephen is so good because he's just focused and nails in. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna live out the stereotype of chasing a rabbit because I just gotta chase a rabbit. Can I chase a rabbit real quick? Here's what I'm sick and tired of, because we deal with this. Uh, this wedding that I did in Colorado was wedding number 28. And almost every time we do premarital, we have to deal with this. Because we grow up understanding, especially ladies, right, especially the girls, that the, the marriage bed is bad. Marriage bed is bad. Marriage bed is bad. Marriage bed, again, you're tracking with the code word. Marriage bed is bad. Marriage bed is bad. Don't do this. And then you get married. It's like, oh, no, it's good now. Go have fun. Do you know the psychological mess that that creates in our young females? To not teach that the marriage bed is a good, glorified gift given to us from God for our enjoyment to lead us to worship? I mean, you think about the craziness of this. And, and I know, and I, I love my youth pastor growing up, and I know he meant best. And I heard this illustration, and it just fit into my exact happenstance of being in middle school. But when I was in middle school, uh, my youth pastor asked my mom if he could take me to a rated R movie. So we went to go see Gladiator. It was great. We saw a bunch of people murdered. I was 12. It was awesome. So it's okay for a 12-year-old to be exposed to what is clearly a sin within Scripture, which is violence. But the church is silent when it comes to the worshipful gift of the wedding bed. That the wedding, this is the perfect gift from God for our enjoyment to lead us to worship. And I'm just afraid that if we don't talk about the goodness that it is, we're going to create so many problems for the generation to come, acting like, man, this is something we can't talk about. God has given us this as a gift, but, but don't say anything about it. No, Scripture says stuff about it. There's a whole book written about the joy of this. So we have, to, we have to talk about marriage, the marriage bed, and the importance of what happens there because that is a gift given to us by God so that we can enjoy, so that we can worship him forever. 
And what's clearly happening here is this idea, the sacredness of the marriage bed was not being addressed. And and more so, what's probably happening, and we're having to read in between the lines, what's probably happening here is because the marriage bed was not being held as important, because it wasn't being discussed, because it wasn't being talked about, uh, there was a lot of people going behind each other and going into other marriage beds. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand. I do, but I don't. But I want to take an informal survey. If you ever heard of your church being destroyed, or you've been a part of a church that has been destroyed because of an affair, just think about that for a second. I mean, I personally have known many friends that have fallen out of the ministry because of an affair. Because the marriage bed, the sanctity of marriage was not protected, an affair took place, and it destroyed the entire church. So yes, not only are we to love God for everything that he's freely given to us, and in light of that, walk in obedience to these, but if we as a church are going to persevere, we as a church all have to protect the boundaries of the marriage bed so that the church would persevere. And listen, I'm doing my part. No one wants to have an affair with an overweight, bearded guy. You think that this is like just who I am. No, this is intentional, right? The moment that some college student walking around the square looks at me again, like gives that double look like, oh, he's cute. I'm just going to keep getting fatter because I'm going to do whatever it takes to not have an affair. You laugh, and I'm kind of joking, but this is first and forefront on my mind. That nothing, Satan would want nothing more than to destroy this church because I had an affair. That my marriage was rocky. Satan would want nothing more than our elders to have an affair and to destroy this church. And this is just a reality of the situation. We see this happen over and over and over and over again. Because that just gives ammunition to those that are already skeptical about the church. Look, that guy was on stage, he was a preacher, and he can't even keep his marriage together. Why should I follow the church? Why should I go to the church? I mean, here's, when we bring on elders, so Jeremy is stepping down, when we bring on the new elder candidates, I will sit down with them, and specifically with all the families in the room, I will sit down with the wives, and I will look them in the eyes, and they will look me in the eyes and say, do you find me attractive? And if they do, they're not going to be an elder. And there's one instance where this female said, well, do you want me to answer honestly? I said, yeah. She said, well, I, I, I do think you're pretty cute. I said, Mom, that's not the place for this now. <laughs> I told my wife I was going to say that. I don't really write jokes, but I wrote that one, and thank you all for laughing. I don't really do that, by the way. Trust me. I, I don't. Megan, do I do that? No, okay. That, that's not happening. But really, all, all joking aside, if we don't protect the marriage bed, Satan will destroy this church overnight. And this is the idea of perseverance for the church. You've got to protect this. And we see plenty of texts. I mean, we could go through 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, 1 Thessalonians 4, and Revelation 21 and 22, all pushing to this point that we have to protect the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of the marriage bed. And and here's, I'll end with this and then, well, on this point, don't get too excited. If you're, if you're walking in any form of adultery, right, because Jesus takes this away from us. It's not just the physical act of adultery, but it's pornography, but it's lust, but it's anything that you think about that's not your spouse. It is God's good grace that you will be found out, that you do not want to walk in secret sin. It will destroy you. It will eat you up from the insides. 
And so when we see here in verse 4 that God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, that is happening. But as a good, loving father, his judgments will bring you to repentance. And, and I'm, I'm not a fool, and I've hung around enough college students, enough young adults, and enough men long enough to know that there's so many struggles like this happening in this room right now. Get in a family group, find some good men, and confess it. Because you will be found out. Confess it before it's too late. Let us walk with you in this journey because you will be found out. Brotherly love, show hospitality, be empathetic, protect marriage. The last exhortation, verse five. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So he ends this exhortation with a very specific command. And again, we need to look at the principle of what's taking place. Because he's not saying you cannot have a bunch of money. He's not saying flee from money. What did he say? Free from the love of money. And so the principle that's at play here is this idea of being covetousness, coveting against what someone else has versus being content in what God has given you. That, that's what's at play here. So are you coveting other people's stuff? So are you coveting what's not yours? Or are you content in what you have? And we see covetousness is, is plainly forbidden here and everywhere else throughout the scriptures. But we all walk in it. We're all constantly warning what's not ours. We're constantly warning what everyone else has. Why did God give that person that and not me? I deserve that more than that person. I deserve more money. I deserve more fame. I deserve more this. I deserve more that. This is constantly happening in the world around us. But, but don't misunderstand what he's saying. The author here is not implying that we should be lazy or yielding passively to whatever comes our way. That's, that's, there's a middle ground here. We can't swing the pendulum, don't covet, so you got to be completely content. Be completely content means don't do anything, just sit and let things come to you. That's not what he's saying. It's rather a detachment from anxious concern by having learned to be immune from the poison of circumstances. I love that phrase that Kent Hughes says. It's a detachment from anxious concern by having learned to live immune from the poison of circumstances. So we cannot continue to covet what we do not have. We cannot pursue more and more and more and more, more money, more fame, more power, more this, more that, more possessions, because the love of that is what's going to destroy us from the inside. Ecclesiastes 5.10 puts it this way. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Did you hear that? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Now, who's saying this? The richest man that's ever lived. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. C.H. Spurgeon would put it this way. It is not possible to satisfy the greedy. If God gave them one whole world to themselves, they would cry for another. For their greed is such that they must have everything or have nothing. This is the idea that the author is implying. Keep your life free from the love of money, not money, for the love of coveting, for the desire to have things that the Lord has not given you. Yes, work hard, but learn to be content in what the Lord has given us. And we see this. Paul clearly talks about this in Philippians 11, or 4, 11 through 12. 
And let me just say, this is not a verse to have on your face as you go play a football game. This is a life verse for all of us. Philippians 4, 11 through 12. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The life of the Christian is marked by a life of being content. Doesn't mean we don't work hard, but we are grateful for what the Lord freely gives us, and we are content in this. So how do we know? How do we know that we are content? First and foremost, does the phrase that ends verse 5 matter to us? When he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that is the message of contentment. That I've got God, what else do I need? That God is with me, he's never going to leave me, he's never going to forsake me. So, man, if, if I work really hard and I get all of this money, praise God. If I work really hard and get none of this money, praise God. Because I have God and he's enough. That, that is the test of being content. Is God truly enough for us? Is God truly enough for everything that we desire, everything that we want? And I, I mentioned this earlier but here's one easy way to know if we're content or not. Are you genuinely, <clears throat> and I don't want to ask this question because I failed this. Are you genuinely happy for those who have success around you? Look right at me. Are you genuinely happy for those who have success around you? That will tell you if you're content or not. I mean, that is a question that will just get straight to your core. If you see someone have success around you and it breeds jealousy, it breeds envy, it breeds frustration, then there's a level that we're not fully satisfied in God alone. Man, I, I wish, I, I wish. He would never, well, he might do this if I asked. There's no man that's more content than old Greg. If you haven't met my dad, dad's an elder here, but, but you just, that dude's just content. He's just always satisfied, always smiling, always happy. And he genuinely celebrates those who have success around him. I've never heard him say a bad word about someone who's had his success around him. That's just Greg. And he says all the time, you've been to his house, they have this house on the lake, they love it. But he'll say all the time, man, God gave us this now, but if he takes it away, we're good. And that's not just words, because old Greg don't lie. That is the reality. If the Lord, for whatever reason, were to take his house... He would, he would be good. He's such a model for being content. And I only say that because he's not here. Just kidding. He knows that. So are you truly content in the idea that God will never leave you nor forsake you? Brotherly love, show hospitality, be empathetic, protect your marriage, and be content. These are the five exhortations that this writer gives us because how much God first and foremost loved us and for the church to persevere. So, so I'll end with this, verse six. How do we do this? How do we walk in these five exhortations? Well, we confidently say that the Lord is my helper. Verse six, so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. This is the message of the gospel. Can you live out these five exhortations by yourself? Absolutely, unequivocally, no. 
left to your own devices following these five exhortations, we would hit zero out of five every single time. That's not what God wants from us. He's not sitting up in his throne saying, hey, do this or I'm going to get really mad and frustrated with you. He said, no, I am your helper. I have loved you. I have provided for you. Depend on me for these exhortations. Depend on me to keep the perseverance of the church alive. Depend on me. So, so here's my question as we close. As I've been working through the text and as we've been working through these five exhortations, my prayer for you since Tuesday has been simply this. Lord, would you convict all of our hearts on one of these? Spirit, would you convict all of our hearts on at least one? So here's my question. What is that one? What is the one exhortation where the moment the text was read, you went, yeah, that's me. That's me. Which one is it? Brotherly love, showing hospitality, being empathetic, protecting your marriage, or being content. What is the Lord wooing you to? Where do you need to repent and grow in? And here's just my final plea. Do not do this alone. Depend on the Lord as helper. Depend on the family groups, the community around you. Confess the sin publicly and allow us to grow in these gifts together. Because I can tell you right now, I'm not very empathetic. And there's been times in my life where I've actually hidden behind that in shame. If you want to deal with someone empathetic, you need to go talk to someone else. Like a coward instead of growing in my empathy. And the other one, I mean, just candidly, being content. I really struggle with being content because I live 30,000 feet in the clouds and I'm always looking for what's next and I'm always frustrated that I'm not there. Now you can judge me all you want to, but a lot of you are probably like me. Actually, I know a few of you that the moment I said that, I'm not going to look at you, but we're the same people. So where is it that the Lord is calling us? He's wooing us to himself Come first to the mountain. Come first to the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He loves us. He cares for us. And out of that, let us grow in obedience. Let us repent and grow. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. Even though it hurts and stings and puts us in uncomfortable places, God, you're not given us these five exhortations to lord them over us. Father, because you're giving them to us because you love us and because you love your church and you want your church to persevere. You want your church to grow. And so, Father, would you convict our hearts on one of these five, two of these five, five of these five exhortations Father, what, is it, what do we need to repent of specifically? What are we areas do we need to grow in specifically? And Father, once we come to that conclusion, let us hit our knees. Let us plead with you as our helper to help. That if we could fix this situation, we would. If I could learn to be content, I would. If I could grow in my empathy alone, I would. Father, you are my helper and I need you. I need you to help me. Let us all depend on you with a childlike faith to do what only you can do. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. It's your name we pray. Amen.